People nowadays are looking for adventure. They may not have time to go away for six months or five months or three months or whatever it might take to be on a long trek and prepare for, let's say, a North Pole expedition from the coast. But, you know, the idea of these marathons is they offer modern day adventure to people. You, you, you get to stand at the North Pole, but you also earn your right there by running a marathon and doing something physical. And I think a lot of people want to do something like that. Hello and welcome to another episode of No Finish Line Podcast featuring athlete interviews and discussion on running, training, travelling and adventure and I'm your host John O'Regan. My guest today is Richard Donovan of Global Running Adventures. Richard will be discussing the background of extreme events he organises such as the North Pole Marathon and Arctic Ice Marathon and World Marathon Challenge. Given his diversity, Richard is worthy of an entirely separate podcast, which I might do at another stage, to discuss some of his thoughts on the philosophy of ultra running, the direction of the sport, and his previous roles as a director of the International Association of Ultra Runners and head of Ultra Running Ireland. He has also organised the IAU Trail World Championships at Ultra Running, obtaining the first global TV audience in the process. That was the Trail World Championships held in Connemara in Galway back in 2011. And he was also a race director for the first Commonwealth Championships at both 100k and Ultra Trail, which was held in Wales. He additionally helped to launch the first Wings for Life World Run and was race director of the inaugural Irish event, which was held in Killarney, County Kerry. And as if that's not enough, Richard has also run across three continents and won several events, such as the Himalayan 100 mile stage race and the Inca Trail Marathon. Richard has also shown himself to be a strong advocate for access to sport for people with disabilities and he's a big supporter of Irish athletes attempting to qualify for the Olympics. His brother Paul was a two-time Olympian, a multiple NCAA track champion and indoor world medalist at 3000 metres. Richard, delighted to have you here and welcome to the podcast. Thank you, John. Now, Richard, can you explain to listeners what is an extreme running event? Well, an extreme running event, there's no set definition of it. But in my case, I organize marathons in extreme locations, I guess. So geographic extremes like the North Pole. I organize the North Pole Marathon. I organize the World Marathon Challenge, which is seven marathons on seven continents in seven days. I organize the Antarctic Ice Marathon, which is the southernmost marathon in the world in Antarctica. And I organize a volcano marathon, which is the highest desert marathon in the world, in the Atacama Desert. So in many respects, they're geographic extremes of sorts. And they're also, you know, you're testing logistics to the extreme. Okay, let's talk a little bit about the North Pole Marathon, because that must be one of the hardest to actually organize. Yeah, the North Pole Marathon is certainly not a conventional road marathon. It takes place on a notion because the North Pole is situated on the Arctic Ocean at 90 degrees north. So you might wonder, well, how do you run a marathon on an ocean? And it's probably the only certified marathon in the world that's run on water as such. And it's because, of course, there's frozen ice on the ocean. There's probably three feet to nine feet of ice on the Arctic Ocean at the North Pole. So the logistics behind getting people to get up there and actually run a 26.2 mile marathon are very, very, very unique. So at the North Pole, there's approximately six months of darkness, followed by six months of daylight. So around the time of the spring equinox in March, the sun comes out at the North Pole and there's constant daylight, 24 hours a day for almost six months. That's the time just after the spring equinox to organize a marathon at the North Pole with all of this daylight. Plus, it's just after the winter, and the ice is robust enough for a plane to land on it. So, a North Pole Marathon will always occur in early April. That is the limited window, a few weeks just after the spring equinox, where it's safe enough for a plane to land at the North Pole, and safe enough for people to run up there. Uh, in my case, I work with a Russian logistics company, who send up a helicopter from Siberia, to locate this piece of ice to build a camp and it's at this camp where the marathon is run 
So essentially, a helicopter takes off from Siberia with enough fuel for one way. It finds the way it finds a piece of ice is that they look for a piece that's mature enough. They can tell by the color of the ice that this ice has been around for a year or two, and therefore it should withstand the plane landing on it, and it should last for the short polar season. So once this ice is located at the North Pole, um, an Aleutian jet takes off and airdrops a tractor and airdrops a tractor driver and some personnel. And this tractor is used to carve out a runway on that ice on the ocean. Can I just stop you there for a second? When you say it airdrops a tractor, does that mean the tractor lands by parachute? That's exactly what it means. The Aleutian, it's a big cargo plane, a Russian cargo plane, an Aleutian 76. It literally flies over the pole in the region where the helicopter is landed. It then airdrops this tractor through the back of it, of the plane, and parachutes deploy and lands on the ice. And shortly after that, the tractor driver is thrown out as well (laughs) with a parachute. And his job, of course, is to carve out this runway, flatten the ice, and make it good enough for a plane to land on it. So... Once this camp is set up, this happens over the course of just a few days. It's, it's a remarkable human achievement by the Russians, in fact, and logistical achievement. Uh, there's nothing at the pole before this, and suddenly there's a tractor there carving a runway. There's some tents being erected and some people there. And that is the location for the North Pole Marathon. What happens from a competitor point of view is I meet competitors in Svalbard, which is an archipelago off the coast of Norway, and they don't have to parachute in there. They fly up there on an Antonov jet. It's about a two and a half hour flight. We land on the ice that has been carved out by this tractor. I set up a course at the North Pole. It's normally a looped course of possibly 5K that people do eight times, or maybe it's 4K that people do 10 times. But I set up a course there We run the race at this camp, and then we get out of there within 48 hours. It's a very (laughs) military-style operation. The reason, again, the difference between it and a conventional road marathon is we don't have to worry about traffic management plans. Our traffic management plan might be to worry about our polar bears in the vicinity, for example. So that's why we keep keep a looped course, uh, a multiple loop course, rather. Um, of course, it's extremely cold. Um, I think three of the last five or six years have been about minus 40 Celsius, which is the same as minus 40 Fahrenheit. So that's pretty chilly. So people have to dress appropriately for that kind of weather. Um, we keep the course, as I say, a multiple loop course so that, you know, uh, aside from the danger of polar bears, it's important to give to monitor people in this race because of the possible impacts of hypothermia, frostbite, uh, and other unique things uh, to a cold weather environment. And of course, there can be breaks in the ice because we are on an ocean. Sometimes there are what's called leads, which is essentially when the ice separates and you can see the ocean below. And so we want to avoid those kind of obstacles when people are running, because I prefer it's a running race and not a survival race. Now, you mentioned you fly in from Svalbard. Is there any reason why you travel from Svalbard when the crew travel from Russia? Yeah, I mean, if you, if you were to go to Russia, you'd probably face a lot of bureaucratic and visa obstacles, whereas Svalbard is the northernmost, possibly the northernmost settlement in the world with an airport. And you can get regular commercial flights from Oslo to Svalbard, even though it's only a thousand kilometers from the North Pole. And where'd you say Svalbard is located again off the coast of Norway? Yeah, Svalbard is an archipelago. Uh, The largest island is called Spitsbergen. And Spitsbergen is a holiday destination in itself, in fact. So when people go to the North Pole, they usually spend a few days in Spitsbergen where they acclimatize and and where they sightsee. And it's a a beautiful island uh, to go to. Now, typically, when you get to the the North Pole camp, how long would you stay there? You know, there's nothing typical about the North Pole. The thing about extreme events, again, that separate them from perhaps road marathons, is even though you may have a template every year, um, every year is unique. Um, Anything can happen at the North Pole, from a break in the ice that cracks the runway and therefore you can't go in on time. Um, 
you know, there can be political problems between which happened this past year between Russia and Ukraine, which influenced planes flying up there. Anything can happen at the North Pole. And that is one of the things about extreme events. There's a lot of uncertainty. And as a race organizer, I have to try and manage that uncertainty for everybody. And you mentioned flying up there on an Antonov plane. Does the plane have skis? How does it land? No, the plane doesn't have skis. It lands as per normal uh, with, with its wheels. But the, the guys who fly these planes, um, they're all usually ex-Russian military pilots. They're their top pilots and uh, are East European guys and former Soviet guys, rather. And they're experts on this. And, and these planes, um, they can take off and land on very short runways. That's their unique capability. And... Um, so, the, you know, a plane can actually land on 300 meters or take off some of these planes, even though we will try and build the runway much longer than that. And when the race finishes, uh, how much time would you spend there before you travel back? Or are you waiting on a plane to come in or is there, is, is there a plane waiting there for you? Well, typically a trip, I, you know, I bring about 60 people to the North Pole every year. That's made up of the runners themselves, some camera crew, some support crew. And... The Antonov jet typically takes about 30 people seated on it. So what happens is I use the plane to go up. It's a two and a half hour flight with the first group of runners. It returns to Svalbard and then it picks up the second group and brings them up. Um, I operate the race shortly after the second plane arrives. And with 24 hours of daylight, that could be at midnight. And, you know, the race can go on. People are not going to be setting personal bests. So let's say it could take 10 hours for some people uh, to eventually finish. And after that, like any marathon, people tend to drink. And uh, that happens at the North Pole too. Uh, but after the marathon itself, um, we actually get a helicopter, an MIA chopper, and I make sure that everybody stands at 90 degrees north for the record. And 90 degrees north is the precise geographic North Pole. And because typically the race, it could be 20 miles away or it could be 40 miles away because we're on an ocean. So over a matter of a few days when the camp is built, it's always floating. So in a sense, the North Pole Marathon is a nebulous concept. It's in the exact area of the North Pole, but it would be an absolute fluke for it to be at the North Pole when it occurs. So each loop that a competitor does Although it's, it's the same loop around the camp, it's in a different location because you're moving. Yeah. And uh, so if, let's say I was to operate a linear event, if I was out of my mind and I decided this year I'm going to have everybody run 26 miles to the pole and reach the pole. In the end, because you're floating, that 26 miles, you could actually reach the pole. You could be floating towards the pole and you wouldn't run 26 miles. Or you could be floating away from it, and it would be a lot take a lot longer to get there. So that's the idea of a loop. And um, but the amazing thing about the North Pole is, if you look at people's GPS data afterwards, you'll see each loop is moving as they're running during the race. So they're running the set distance. Let's say it's ten laps, four point two k per lap. That lap is moving all the time while they're running. So you see, you see that movement on the GPS, and, and I reckon that's totally unique for a marathon race. Now, how would somebody dress for a race like this? You know, one of the ironies of running in cold weather is you can overheat, and you don't dress in bulk. You wear layers of light clothing. That's how you deal with the cold. So what I would advise people to wear is a base layer on their legs and a base layer on their torso. And... That base layer takes sweat away from the body easily. Um, and then use a wind shell on your legs, but on your torso have a fleece layer and a wind shell. And the idea of the fleece layer is it keeps you relatively warm. And of course, any wind shell, which is like a tracksuit, is basically designed to stop the wind penetrating. So um, that's the kind of stuff you wear in your body. On your hands, I'd recommend mittens which are fingerless gloves, in other words, they're because you can get the air to circulate among your fingers uh, when they're not separated. And, uh, of course, people wear goggles, 
a face mask. All your peripherals are subject to frost damage. So it's very, very important to keep your ears, your nose, your toes, your fingers, all of those things are the, are the most likely to be impacted by frostbite. So, you know, you wear these things and you look like you're just wearing a tracksuit. You're not dressed up like a big Michelin man or anything. It's, it's layers is the key. And, you know, running a race like the North Pole, it's, as I say, you can actually overheat. And so these layers, so the, the wind jacket should have ventilation zips. In other words, you can pull down a zip and let some air into it. You know, starting a race like the North Pole, it's always advisable to start slightly cold. So those zips you mentioned, they're like what you might see under the arm on your jacket. Exactly. Okay, so so that's what they're for, is ventilation. That is what they're for, because of this danger of overheating. It is an irony. The problem is if you sweat too much, when you stop, it freezes, and that's the problem. And what you want to try and do, running naturally produces sweat, unless you're not making much effort, but you will be at the North Pole. And, and you want to just control, ventilate as much as possible, stay slightly cold, but manage your heat, manage your resources in that way. And no, you know, another thing at the North Pole, for example, you know, I tell people, don't drink water quickly. You know, it'll spill on you and then it becomes rock hard ice. You know, take your time, take an extra couple of seconds to think about what you do. You know, so there's none of that. As I say, again, it's another difference with a road marathon. You're not catching water and dumping it in. You have to watch these things at the pole. And what about your feet? Would you wear trail shoes, hiking boots? I, I just recommend trail runners. And um, would you use snowshoes? No, we don't use snowshoes at the North Pole. I consider them an impediment to performance because unless you're used to them, they're going to affect your hips and uh, cause a lot of pain. They have a different running motion. And also... If you wear things like spikes and that, the reality is we have tents at the North Pole that people have to go into and they will cut the covering of the tents, on the, you know, so we can't have that happening. You know, that, that's something you wouldn't just uh, think about. So obviously it has happened. It has happened, yeah. So, you know, everything is trial and error over the years. But when you mentioned not wearing snowshoes, is it not a case of each time you take a step that your foot is sinking into the ground? Uh, at the North Pole? Yes. Yeah, the North Pole, actually, it's a course that we don't groom. So in other words, we're up there and you see the ice and that's what you're running on. You know, you see these, what I call hillocks of ice. It's where the ocean has been crashing against itself and it causes, you know, little uh, kind of mounds of ice. Like a plowed field. Yeah. And, um, you know, so that's what people run on. I do incorporate the runway a little bit. So that's the flat obviously groom surface but other than that people are sent out to meander around uh, the surface of the ocean as it is and um, you know if you're out there if you're a kilometer away from camp at the North Pole that's an eternity you know you you really feel you're out there by, by yourself because you can't even see the camp when you're a kilometer away due to these hillocks of ice or if you run in the opposite direction so you get a real feeling of adventure and being out there in this really remote part of the planet. Yeah, it does sound amazing. Now, when you're not running, how would your your uh, dress different? When you're not running, what kind of clothing would you wear at yeah. the pole? Yeah, when you're not running, it's important to have big Arctic polar boots, you know, and... Um, wind pants and the big jackets that you see typically in outdoor stores. So that's where that kind of clothing comes into play. So you're just keeping yourself well insulated. But activity clothing, as I mentioned, and the act of running, you wear different stuff and it's lighter. And, you know, it, it's not what people imagine initially you would be wearing because typically when I give people examples of gear to get, they're kind of questioning it because it's light. But that's what you want. You want light, a little bit of insulation, and the ability to ventilate. And layers, which layers allows you to be adaptable. Key. How does the North Pole Marathon differ from the Antarctic Ice Marathon? Well, the Antarctic Ice Marathon, both of them are obviously running cold conditions. But the Antarctic Ice Marathon is literally the polar opposite of the North Pole Marathon. Whereas the North Pole Marathon takes place on an ocean... Um, the Antarctic Ice Marathon takes place on land, uh, takes place in Antarctica, which is a continent. 
And does that make it easier to get to? Yeah, it makes the uh, facilities easier to arrange. So let's say an Antarctic camp will be more sophisticated than a North Pole camp because we have very limited time at the North Pole, you know, only a matter of a few weeks before the ice cracks and is unsafe for landing. So everything is done very, very quickly at the North Pole. Whereas in the Antarctic, you have what we call an Antarctic season, which lasts for several months, where you have daylight, where you have, you know, the, usually between November and the end of January, where all kinds of activities can happen in Antarctica. So that difference is enormous in terms of logistics, planning, safety, uh, and all these other elements. And flying to Antarctica, is that an easier process? Well, the flight to Antarctica, we use a different plane. So for the Antarctic Ice Marathon, I meet people in a town called Punta Arenas, which is the southern tip of Chile. So people get there via Santiago, get an internal flight and land in uh, Punta Arenas. Uh, from Punta Arenas, we actually use an Aleutian jet, which uh, can bring 60 people. So there's not two flights like at the North Pole. Uh, but it's a longer flight, so it takes about five hours or so to get down to a camp in Antarctica at a place called Union Glacier. Uh, Union Glacier is situated about 650 miles from the South Pole itself. Um, so this camp, Union Glacier, is set up not just for the marathon, obviously. There, it is kind of like a hub in Antarctica for other activities. So there might be people who are going to a penguin colony. There are people going to the South Pole itself. Uh, people climb in Vinson, which is the highest mountain in Antarctica. And typically, most people will come to Union Glacier and then get an internal flight on a smaller plane to wherever they need to go. For me, we just fly to Union Glacier and we operate the marathon there. Now, I take it there's no air traffic control in Antarctica. So do you have a scheduled flight? Like, do you know like, I'm leaving at 10 past 3 on Friday afternoon? Yeah, like the North Pole, Antarctica, everything in Antarctica is governed by weather. So safety is of the utmost importance. So, for example, good running weather may not be good flying weather. <laughs> and uh, schedules are very much uh, subject to weather on the day. In comparison to the North Pole, how does the Antarctic Ice Marathon compare with temperature, the terrain, clothing? Is there, is there anything... Anyway, it differs. Yeah, it actually differs quite a bit. Um, the temperature, it's not as cold in Antarctica at this location as it would be at the North Pole. So it may, you know, on occasion, it can get down to about minus 25 Celsius with the wind chill. But typically, I would expect it to be minus 10 to minus 15. So that's a, quite a significant difference compared to what I would anticipate at the North Pole every year. Also, we are running on land. It is on a glacier, so that glacier is crevasse-checked, actually. So there's a lot of safety elements go into the Antarctic Ice Marathon before it's operated. But we do groom a course, and we have a bigger course. It's normally four loops, uh, because we don't have to worry about polar bears down there. And we don't have to worry about cracks exposing an ocean below. So... Um, we usually use a four-loop course. It can be a two-loop course sometimes. And um, But the clothing itself, the same principles apply. It's cold and you should wear layers of clothing. Uh, in fact, I find layers of clothing, as I recommend, work better the colder the weather. And because it's not quite so cold in Antarctica, sometimes people will remove the middle layer on their torso. And again, the key is to just not sweat too much and to try and manage that. Ideally, you want to be moving at a pace whereby you're keeping yourself warm but not overheating. Exactly. And uh, and if you have that tendency, if you feel you might start to overheat, you ventilate. Um, so, you know, that's Antarctica, that's Union Glacier. As I say, it's, it's a more sophisticated camp because it can be. Because you have a season there where you're not worrying about an ocean and the ice on the ocean disintegrating. So you have a... a a camp there for three months that caters for all these various activities and the marathon is one of them um, and there's quite a few activities down there whereas at the North Pole 
the North Pole Marathon is probably the principal activity. It's responsible for at least one quarter of the people, if not more, who go to the North Pole every April. That's a lot. With it being so cold at the North Pole and Antarctica, I take it that you can't really run with a bottle of water. It's kind of pointless. To you. So yeah, would you get that out of your aid station? Yeah. So we, you know, at the North Pole, we have, um, you know, we erect a camp that's heated and uh, the tents are heated. And normally people, as they do each loop, they need to go in to the tent to, to get water. You know, for a period of time, water won't freeze because if you leave a little gap in it and it can move up and down and shake while you're running and if you put it on the inside of your jacket, that's good. You know, people carry gels sometimes. Again, if you keep them close to your skin, that's what's going to stop them freezing, you know. So, but typically people don't really need to carry these things because there are aid stations. It may take, you know, a minute to go into the tent and come out. But again... You're not worrying about getting that Boston Marathon qualifying time or any kind of PB in these races, unless it's your first marathon. Who would want to run a marathon at the North Pole? <laughs> well, that's a good question. And in fact, I suppose when I set the race up in the first place, I answered that by saying, well, I wanted to. So I'm sure there's a lot of people like me who, who like the idea of something being a little bit crazy and uh, maybe they shouldn't do it. And that's the very reason they should. And I guess, you know, people nowadays are looking for adventure. They may not have time to go away for six months or five months or three months or whatever it might take to be on a long trek and prepare for, let's say, a North Pole expedition from the coast. But, you know, the idea of these marathons is they offer modern day adventure to people. You, you, you get to stand at the North Pole, but you also earn your right there by running a marathon and doing something physical. And I think a lot of people want to do something like that and uh, in fact I get people who go to the North Pole and they inevitably get the bug as we call it and want to go to Antarctica then or vice versa or do something else go to a jungle there are races everywhere in the world nowadays and very often those locations those extreme locations a marathon is a reason to go there um, of course with Antarctica a lot of people now have a goal to run a marathon on all seven continents and the Antarctic Ice Marathon is one of only two races on Antarctica that people can run the other one being what's called the Antarctica Intercontinental Marathon which is the first marathon of the World Marathon Challenge which I also organize so you know going to the Antarctic Ice Marathon is an opportunity to do something bigger there's the marathon itself the adventure down there but there's also this idea of seven continents which is a big goal for many people. Tell me a little bit about the Intercontinental Antarctic Marathon. Okay, uh, well, actually, that race is part of a bigger event called the World Marathon Challenge, which is uh, another race I organize where I bring people to run seven marathons on seven continents within seven days, or in other words, 168 hours. And is that race also held in the same location? No, um, the route for the World Marathon Challenge is different. And the first marathon, which is in Antarctica, is in a different location than Union Glacier. So the idea of the World Marathon Challenge came about from the very fact I just mentioned that people have a goal to run a marathon on all seven continents. And, you know, it can take them many, many years to do so. And I kind of came up with this concept. Well, how about if I narrow this down to a short time frame? And much like the North Pole or Antarctica, which are kind of counterintuitive locations to organize events in a sense, I thought this idea a little bit crazy to bring people around to run seven marathons and seven continents in seven days would have a lot of people who might want to do it. And so I came about with the idea. And the route for 2020, for example, we start uh, in a place called Novo, which is a Russian base directly south of Cape Town, 4,200 kilometers south of Cape Town in Antarctica. That's where we have the first marathon. Then we go to Cape Town for the second marathon, Perth for Australia, Dubai for Asia, Madrid for Europe, Fortaleza in Brazil for South America, and then we finish in South Beach, Miami. So with this event, I meet people in Cape Town. That's our departure point. And I bring them into Antarctica for that first marathon. And that first marathon is called the Antarctica Intercontinental Marathon. And um, 
as soon as we start that first marathon, we have exactly 168 hours to get to the finish and finish the final marathon in Miami to get everything done within seven days. How do you make that happen? How do you know that you're going to get around the world in that space of time? Well, you know, I mentioned the North Pole is, is quite a logistical feat, you know, working with the Russians up there to airdrop tractors, carve out a runway, you know, operate an event on an ocean. This is probably even more difficult uh, to organize a World Marathon Challenge. Again, you have, I suppose, the uncertainty about even the start day because you're dealing with Antarctica. But essentially, I, I charter a plane nowadays and um, I meet people in Cape Town and suppose we go into Antarctica on this plane. The plane waits on the runway while we operate a marathon uh, and then we return to Cape Town. All these events from Cape Town onward have local organizers. They're all certified marathon courses. They've been measured by AIMS measures. And um, so they're all official events, uh, all officially measured and monitored. In this situation, though, I have the uncertainty of, well, maybe I won't start on the day. And that has an impact on every other event, obviously. In other words, I have to get permits for possibly the second day. Um, all these uncertainties arise. But, um, yeah, it's a, it's a very big logistical feat. Luckily, so far, um, I have actually started on the day, and there's been no need to push out a marathon by a day and, and deal with all the changes associated with that. But um, We talked about the conditions at the North Pole and Antarctica, and here you have another event starting in, in, starting in Antarctica. But 160 hours later, you're running a marathon in Miami. So the range of temperature must be going from, say, minus 30, maybe to plus 30. So that's a difference of 60 degrees. How does the body cope with that? Yeah, I mean, that's, that's a good question. And this is one of the other, you know, aside from the logistics of the race, which I handle for everybody, there's what the runners experience in this. So I already mentioned the clothing you wear in Antarctica and the North Pole. That's only one set of clothing here. Then they have six other events. So... Within 24 hours, we get back to Cape Town after the first marathon, and we're suddenly running in immense heat, potentially. And, and plus, you've met in Cape Town, so you're going from that heat to an extreme cold, and then back to that heat. Yes, exactly. And then we come back to this. Uh, I have to arrange logistically a big turnaround of people, so they're at a start line and ready to go. Uh, all their changes of clothing and everything involved in that. But when they actually run themselves they're suddenly in shorts and a singlet and it's hot and they're fatigued because they've already just run a marathon. So the first two marathons of this World Marathon Challenge are quite close together and you're immediately going from temperature extremes. And that takes a toll, you know. Um, it, it's kind of surreal for the runners actually um, to do that, to be in Antarctica and suddenly in Cape Town. And then suddenly they're on a flight and they're going to Perth Perth, again, is a hot location. Uh, we operate that marathon in the evening, so it takes the sting out of the heat. But again, you're in a warm location. Same with Dubai. Madrid, suddenly you're in the European winter. And it might be only zero degrees, but again, there's been a fluctuation from the previous race in Dubai and in a very short period of time. And you're back into almost your polar clothing. Not quite, but a different set of clothing. Then Fortaleza, Brazil will be hot, and Miami, of course, hot. And this is all done within 168 hours. It's almost like a cruel experiment for the runners where they're in these changing temperatures. They're not having hotel stays along the way, maybe only one because we don't have time. Uh, they have to sleep on the plane, so they have a, you know, a certain amount of sleep deprivation. They're in changing time zones, as I say, changing temperatures. And suddenly they're in Miami within 168 hours. And I often ask people when we reach Miami at the start line, and I say, how long ago do you think it was when you ran in Antarctica? And it seems like a distant memory to them. That's how surreal the event is with all the travel, the different continents and cultures they encounter, temperatures, sleep deprivation. They actually lose all sense of time. And it's very hard for them to process 
that you know what only 150 or 60 hours ago I was running in Antarctica and now here I am in Miami and uh, and often it's the case with other events too at the North Pole and Antarctica that it takes a while for people to process these events they go home afterwards and they kind of have to pinch themselves and say I was there and I did that and they're looking at the pictures and and it's amazing for them it's totally life-changing yeah and you mentioned sleep deprivation and that would also affect recovery and then there's the distance that people end up running so like over the seven days that's almost 300 kilometers which isn't too far off 200 miles which is quite a lot like nobody would do that in training but then they end up doing that in a week with all that traveling uh, you said not sleeping in a hotel bed they're not recovering as as normal they're going to these kind of extremes of temperatures so it's it's quite incredible when you think about it it is, yeah, and yet it's an event, I think, that's open to anybody to do, much like ultramarathons. You know, people say, you know, who does these events? And, you know, are, are they extreme athletes who are sponsored all the time or, you know, whatever? And, and there's quite a spectrum. It just goes to show how adaptable the human body is. And if you cut away the drama, like these things are doable. It's all down to how much you actually want to do it. And then there's the power of the mind. If... If you have a clearly defined goal, you will do it. Absolutely. I mean, a lot of people who go to the North Pole, Antarctica, or do the World Marathon Challenge, for example, sometimes they're doing it for other reasons. Besides, you know, they're raising money for a charity or they're doing it in memory of somebody who might, you know, a close relative, some combination of those things. And you know when they get there, they sure as hell want to finish. And with my events as well, I don't... I don't want to knock people out of them. You know, I want people to finish. The goal of my events is I, I feel personally as a failure if somebody doesn't get across the line. I want everybody to finish. So I don't have strict cutoffs as long as people look okay to me. Um, you know, I'm flexible with cutoff times. And the whole idea for me is get them to finish the event. And you get all types of people who do them from, you know, and that defy preconceptions. Um you get people, uh, of course, you get the odd, you know, elite runner, you know, Olympic standard runner who might take part in one of these events. But otherwise, they're like road marathons uh, in the sense of who takes part. A wide spectrum of people, male, female, different ages, some people with disabilities. I've had a lot of people with various disabilities who've managed to finish these races, and they're quite inspirational. And like I say, it's easier to be resilient when you have a clearly defined goal. Yeah, I mean, I don't think anybody uh, decides to go to the World Marathon Challenge or the North Pole on a whim. By the time it comes around, they'll have defined their goal very clearly and what they want out of that trip, in terms of certainly in terms of running or finishing. Yeah, I think if somebody is going to go to that extreme, like they've invested a lot of time, money, and whatever else into it, and yeah, they, they say no one. Uh, yeah, I think if somebody is, is going to make that much of an investment in events they they'd want to complete it yeah and you know even just in terms of financially these events are not cheap they're inherently expensive because you know to operate any event in a polar region is just a costly exercise and uh you know these marathons or even the world marathon challenge they're probably the least expensive ways of getting to the north pole and antarctica are around the world uh and yet there are these marathons you can run on top of it all well, just as you mentioned the expense, I was reading there recently about the supply chain to get a 100 litre barrel of aviation fuel to the South Pole. That barrel that would probably cost approximately $135 in South America, but the time it gets to the South Pole, it can cost over $1,000 because of the amount of fuel that's actually needed to get that there. Everything in the polar region is an expense. Yeah, everything in the polar regions is expensive because there's not just the expertise required. But there's also, you know, fuel governs most activities anywhere in the world. If you need fuel at the South Pole, you can't ship it in there and you can't just drive it in there. You actually have to fly it in there. So you have aircraft taking off with fuel um, to carry to the pole and they're burning fuel to bring it there. And that's just the reality. You know, OK, there's not huge activities in these areas, but to have any activity, that's essentially what's behind it. How did you come up with the idea for the World Marathon Challenge? What made you think it was logistically possible to fly a group of runners 
around the world to complete a marathon on each of the continents within the seven days. Like any of the events I've mentioned so far, I always do them myself first, basically, uh, to, to test the waters as such. And um, I'd seen many years ago, of course, about uh, Ranald Fiennes' attempt to run seven marathons and seven continents in seven days. And, and that kind of, you know, I know in the end it didn't quite work out for him and he had to use, I think... Uh, the Falkland Islands? Yeah, the Falkland Islands is a proxy for Antarctica. But I liked the idea and the, you know, the ambition he had in doing it. And that kind of inspired me in a way to say, well, look, can I do something like this in less than seven days, maybe? Is it possible? And use economy of flights around the world and see if I could do it. So quite literally one night uh, I looked at Skyscanner and I actually had to go into Antarctica with somebody on a private trip. And I thought... And it was to this Novo base south of Cape Town. I thought, okay, while I'm there, what happens if I run a marathon? Can I leave there and get around the world, take a chance in a certain time period, spending maybe eight to ten hours in each location, run a marathon, and maybe get it done in under six days? And and that's what I said about doing. So uh, the first time I did it was 2009, I think, and I got around in five days, ten hours. So I ran this marathon in Novo, and then I went to Cape Town, got on a commercial flight to Dubai. After you ran the marathon? After I ran a marathon in Cape Town, then to Dubai, then to London, Toronto, Santiago, and finished in Sydney. And I had all the marathon courses measured. Uh, I traveled by myself, and I went economy all the way. Uh, got around the world uh, in five days, 10 hours, completing the seven marathons on seven continents. So that was my first test of it. So in other words, I, I kind of was in Antarctica anyway, and I just took the long way home to see if it would work, and it did. And I then did it a second time in 2012, and I did it in four days, 22 hours, three minutes, albeit on a different route. And, and from that spawned the idea of, well, okay, this can be done, and I'm just using commercial airlines here. And um, maybe I can do this as an event, and bring people to do it in seven days, because obviously seven, seven, seven has a nice ring to it. So seven marathons, seven continents, seven days. And whatever about me doing it myself in less time, that's just my own risk. When I'm doing it for other people, I want to make sure I get things done right, and seven days is the best time frame. And uh, I then launched the first commercial one in 2015, and I still use commercial airlines for that, and brought a limited number of people, and it worked. Did the same again in 2016, and then I realized there's a demand here now, and I turned it into a bigger event and started to charter a plane to get people around. Now, in your spare time, you run across continents. So you've run across North America twice, is that right? Yeah, I've run across continents. I ran across uh, the U.S. in uh, 2015. I ran from San Francisco to New York, about 3,000. 200 miles the route i took um i then ran across uh, europe the year after from istanbul to the coast of the netherlands near rotterdam and i ran across south america albeit a shorter route from uh, the coast in argentina to the coast in chile and over the andes mountains and you're planning to run north america again yeah, I did those events. Originally, I did those events. I did the U U.S. event in 2015 with the goal of running across Antarctica, actually, later that year, because nobody had ever run across Antarctica before, and I thought it would be a great place to cross the continent. As it happened, for various reasons, uh, logistically, the Antarctic crossing didn't happen that year. Uh, I found myself in need of getting fit again the following year, and I just defaulted to, you know, I may as well run across Europe and uh, and then I decided, well, I'll run across South America. And unfortunately, the Antarctic event hasn't occurred yet, which was what all these transcontinental runs were for, because I kind of got a catastrophic knee injury that's taken me out for over two years. So these continental runs are basically training runs to help you kind of plan like your logistics for going to Antarctica. Yeah, it's. I mean, people might laugh at the idea that you ran across America as a training run, but the reality was, well, that's kind of what it was. I, you know, I'd spent all these years organizing events and I found I wasn't running myself and I was getting unfit and I didn't really have the motivation to do the traditional events. And I thought, you know, 
well, what would I love to do? And, you know, I knew I wanted to run across Antarctica. I said, but, you know, I really need to get into shape for that. And the best way to do that for me is to go across the continent like North America. And, you know, the U.S. is an epic place geographically, the people, everything. It's fast and it's amazing. And I thought, you know, I'll run across the U.S. and that will get me into shape. And that's how, I, you know, I didn't really train for that. Um and I remember having colossal weight loss in the first few weeks, like losing two and a half stone in three weeks because I went from running, you know, six or seven miles a day to suddenly running 40, you know. And uh, yeah, so it got me fit and it was it was a great thing for me to do. It was uh, to see America unfold in front of you. Seeing it on foot is way different than seeing it any other way. And you don't miss things on foot. You see why the state boundaries are where they are. You see how people change from one state to another. And one of the most amazing things for me about America was how rural it is. Um, we have this idea, especially growing up in Ireland, you see the, the cop movies or series and you think all the action is in the city. And in fact, I lived in America for a number of years. I lived in cities. I lived in Boston. I lived in Phoenix. And yet, I didn't even know that this whole area outside of the cities existed, just how rural America is and how amazingly rural it is, how the people are amazing there in these rural areas, and how people in the city don't know of this either, much like I didn't know uh, about what's outside these cities. I think that's actually the case. And uh, like things like... I didn't realize cornfields went all the way from Kansas to almost New York City. I was still seeing cornfields in New Jersey. And that to me was something I didn't realize before I ran across the States. So you were glad you made that decision? Yeah. I mean, the you know, I, I say my own events like the North Pole and Antarctica and that are often life-changing events for people. People often describe their life as kind of pre-North Pole and post-North Pole. It's a very big uh, thing in their lives. Running across America was a big thing for me because you change, you know, the whole essence of ultra running, of course, is you learn about yourself. It's a mental endeavor as much as it's a physical one. And, you know, uh, what I learned was when I started this run, I was kind of fighting at first. You know, I had to get up the next day and run again, probably because I was unfit when I started. But then I learned myself to kind of give in to that, to stop trying to control it and to decide it was my lot. And I, I've often compared it to possibly what a prison sentence is like, where you're resisting it. And then you say, OK, this is my lot for the next few months and get on with it. And then once you let that go, you then experience the days and you, you take them as they are. And, you know, I appreciated every day in America um, that I had, you know. So I'm guessing that you didn't pick the shortest route. You picked the route that you would find most interesting and you got to visit places that you wanted to see. Yeah, one of my competitors in a previous race, her name is Heather Carr, and she came up with the route for me. I remember she had run the Antarctic Ice Marathon and I just said, as I do, uh, I'm thinking of running across America. You know, I always keep in touch with people after my races. And she's, I remember her asking, oh, what's your what's your route, you know, or, or whatever. And I said, uh uh, probably San Francisco to New York, and I had nothing in the middle. <laughs> you know, I just said, followed the signs. And I remember her saying, you know, well, would you like me to come up with one? And I said, you know, and I said, well, I want to see certain types of places. And then that's how it arose. So she just came up with this route that brought me, you know, it wasn't a linear route, shortest one across, but brought me to lovely places in Utah uh, that I would never have gone to otherwise. And, uh, and did you backtrack at any stage to visit somewhere? No, never. I mean, the the whole way the North American run was operated was it was very simple. You know, I, I've heard of people who overanalyze stuff before they do it. In my case, all I knew was I had to run, I would probably run about 35, 40, whatever miles per day. I had no idea. And I would need somebody to pick me up at the end of the day and maybe bring us somewhere to stay. I didn't have a camper van or that. And so I literally would have one person. I'd have my GPS recording me running. I'd have a person I'd meet a couple of times during the day, two or three times where I'd get a drink off them or whatever if there was no stores along the way. And at the end of the day, we'd go and try and find accommodation and then come back to where I'd finished the previous day and just keep going and eventually you get there. Um, but I've had no reason to go back since other than, 
when I'd go back to where I finished each day. That was about it. Now, when you go back to do North America again, are you going to follow a completely different route? Uh, will you go the same direction? No, I've, yeah, so I've decided I, I've been injured for two years. I had, um, just when I was ready to go across Antarctica in 2017, I was a few weeks out and I had been, probably made the mistake of training and I got injured and I, my knee just went from me for want of a better way of putting it. I, I always had some pain in my patella tendons, but then the, the medial side of my left knee just kind of gave way and I decided to look under the bonnet for the first time and I got an MRI on both knees. And the results of that MRI, I remember in September 2017, was not good. I had um, torn patella tendons. One was going to snap off. Two torn medial meniscus, one in each knee. Bone bruising, bone blunting. And I suppose like any ultra runner, you have a high pain tolerance or you tend to ignore pain. And whatever happened to me just tipped over. And then I saw what was underneath. And it was, there was so much stuff wrong, I didn't know what to do uh, initially. And then I decided maybe stem cells was the way to go because they could be injected in all over the place and they might fix stuff. So my first port of call was to get um, uh, stem cells taken from my marrow. They were grown in a lab, they were harvested. And then because there's a correlation between the amount you get and and their capability of fixing stuff. So I had all that done by the end of 2017, uh, very quickly. And the stem cells fixed my patella tendons entirely. I've never had a pain there since, but did not work well with meniscus and uh, those kind of injuries. So the long and short of it is I've had uh, two operations since, and now I'm back running again. So, uh, so my next run will be to revert back to North America uh, and do a run across there an entirely different route and can you just run in straight lines or, or, or are you okay at torn corners oh I can uh, I can jog slowly I think yeah so well no the, the, the next um, my next run across North America I tend to start after the Boston Marathon uh, the day after and I'm going to run from Boston obviously uh, again take a non-straight route across the US to finish at Santa Monica Pier. So at the moment, I intend to go from Boston towards Chicago, up to Minneapolis, across the Badlands, see Mount Rushmore, head down towards um, Monument Valley, uh, run through Compton, and finish at Santa Monica Pier. So it's to see a different part of America and some of the Irish-American parts of it too, like Chicago, Boston. Now, the fact that you're going back to North America for the second time, and your other events that you organize have all come about because you have ran these events previously. Are you planning on setting up something in North America? <laughs> uh, I don't know about that. Well, there is a cycle I, race, the race across there America. Is a, there is a race across America. I, I actually have had an idea, but I can't discuss it okay. about a North American crossing as a race. But it, it's, it would be entirely not what people would think. Um, it would be more fun North American crossing. Um, but yeah, uh, no, other than that, though, in all seriousness, North America is really about me getting back into it again. Um, I suppose like many people, I have a healthy dislike for training. I don't, it's not easy for me to go out and do long runs and stuff you, like you that. You need to have purpose to what you do. I have to have a purpose. And I think starting on one side of a country and saying I need to get to the other side is is the purpose and it makes it a lot easier and, and being in a lovely place like the States and experiencing it is, is a bonus. And it's also an opportunity to raise money for a good cause maybe uh, because it does kind of capture people's imagination. And I found that before uh, where people see you run across, they can follow you for a few months. I try to keep everything light and fun, but then there'll always be a serious side where I try to raise money for something. Now with the South American crossing, how did that differ logistically? Now, I know it is a very, very different place, but with regards, you know, getting people to meet you and finding accommodation, how tricky was that? Um, it was it was tricky enough, I guess, uh, because there was a part where we had to go over the Andes. And, you know, accommodation in that w wasn't so much the big element going across South America. It was um, going over the Andes. It was the traffic. So I was on a very busy route at one point. 
they don't really have you know margins at the side of the road for runners you know in in some countries and i had the same problem in parts of europe where you were literally taking your life in your hands sometimes you would be running along the road of course facing traffic but the problem would be cars overtaking from behind you and just whizzing by you and you know it frightened the life out of you sometimes you knew a few times you were within a centimeter or two being whacked off the road uh, they're kind of more the the problems with transcontinental runs that doesn't exist in America. That's why it's another good place to go back to. Did you have any uh, accidents on any of the intercontinental runs? No, uh, I didn't have any. I was lucky enough. I remember in Bulgaria and uh, Serbia, you'd see all the little uh, gravestones or memorials by the side of the road where people had been killed. And you're just, you know, you're, cars are coming up behind you and you know you could be next and you know there was periods like that um but i never really had any accident i never had really any bad encounters either you know i remember people saying you know you're, you're running across the state somebody's going to shoot you you know there's people have these preconceptions about countries you know i may have had two incidents in america two incidents of being confronted in some way um over several thousand miles that's nothing that could happen going into town on a night out. <laughs> Any problems with wild animals? I suppose my I have a little fear of cows. We won't call them wild animals, but running across America, whenever I'd see the open range cattle, that would kind of worry me more than seeing a bear or a lion or something like that. I'd be going, oh no. It's actually, there was a lot of roadkill I encountered, which was strange, you know. I, I suppose unexpected. You'd see, uh, I became good eventually at at knowing how long a carcass was there, probably, before I'd ever see it. And you got to see some interesting animals, I say. All kinds of, you know, animals, deer, everything, you know, that would have been unfortunate enough to have been hit by a car on the road. Well, I'm going to take a step back now, because I'm, I'm trying to figure out, before you started running and in, uh, organizing these events, what were you doing previous to that? What did you give up to become an extreme events organizer? Yeah, it's, uh, I, I suppose I was actually an economist and that's my profession. That's what I trained to do. Um, I, you know, when I went to college here in Galway, I did a degree in economics and classical civilization. I think I was the first person to do that particular combination because I had an interest in classics and, uh, and economics as different as they are. Um, after that, I ended up getting a fellowship to do a master's here in Galway. And, you know, I was, I was pretty good at economics. I got, a, I think, a first-class master's thesis or something. And, and as a result of that, I got a, a scholarship to America to do a PhD in uh, Arizona State University. So I went to America as well for a period. So I ended up working as an economist. I was, uh, I was teaching at various third-level institutions during my time, and then I became a consultant economist, and I was a specialist in, uh, I suppose, antitrust economics, which is, you know, I, I ended up protecting industries who'd be investigated for price fixing or, you know, or if, if there was deregulation on the cards. So I was kind of involved in that area for quite a while. Um, but I always had an interest in running because my brother was a good runner, he ran in a couple of Olympics and he was a sub four miler and yeah, he, he was a good runner. And so I always had that interest there. And then I realized, you know, uh, I was in this profession economics and just because you're good at something doesn't mean it's good for you. And I felt I was in this profession that didn't really mean anything to me. It was losing its meaning. Um, I, I suppose I was an unconventional economist, but I always had this idea of kind of adventure anyway. And like I mentioned, a lot of people don't have time to go on big expeditions and all this, and they regret things later in life. I was realizing that earlier in life, I suppose I'm saying, I want to do something different, you know, and that got me into this field eventually. Is there a particular event or race that was a turning point that actually helped you to make that decision? Yeah, it was um, actually the death of my parents. My father died in 1998 and my mother died in 2000. Both of them were actually buried on the same day because my father gave his body to science. So they were buried on the same day in 2000 by a complete coincidence, which I, I obviously had a profound effect on me. Causes you to be a little bit introspective, of course, at the same time. 
And I began to question my own life. You know, what is it that brings meaning to my life as such? And it wasn't economics. <laughs> and, uh, and I decided I wanted to do something in my parents' memory. And that kind of, I found myself gravitating towards, towards running. You know, what I did as a kid and what I was watching my brother Paul do. And I decided myself uh, that I would get back into running. Uh, I would dedicate a number of races to their memory and raise money for some good causes. And that's where I came up with my own idea of running on seven continents. And at that time, uh, a marathon to the South Pole, the first and only marathon to the South Pole was being advertised. So that was going to be my Antarctica event. And then I was going to run other races, which I did in 2002 around the world. So like the Himalayan 100 mile race, the Inca Trail Marathon, etc. So that was kind of the catalyst, the death of my parents and this decision about meaning, I suppose, and, you know, doing stuff that mattered to me came about and, and put me on this trajectory away from economics back into the running world or into the kind of adventure world and where I felt I kind of had a calling. So running the South Pole Marathon in 2002, which I went down with, you know, I restarted training. I went from being very, very unfit in 2001 to, you know, running sub three hour marathons and in my training sessions, basically. And uh, that happened very, very quickly. Went down to the South Pole, which was quite an experience. Uh, won a marathon down there and that set the ball rolling. Um, the race at the South Pole was quite controversial. Uh, I beat a guy from the U.S. called Dean Carnassus. He was about half an hour behind me. But um, the race itself was sponsored by the North Face. He was a North Face athlete. After the event, they decided to invent categories where they deemed me to be the winner of a snowshoe division because I was wearing snowshoes. So uh, eventually, a court ruled that I was, of course, the winner, that that was all nonsense. But it was quite an experience for my first race. And that South Pole Marathon actually sent me to the North Pole because I heard a rumor after I'd won the South Pole Marathon that perhaps Carnassus was going to the North Pole to run a marathon up there. Whether that rumor is true or not, it caused me to figure a way up there to get in touch with Russia, even though I had no background in this. And I made it to the North Pole with the Russians. I went up and tested the runway with them on the plane, the first plane that landed there, and I built the camp with them. And I ran a marathon up there by myself, just with a GPS. And from that idea, I said, wow, you know, this is what I've been missing out on in my life as such. This kind of adventure that I haven't been on for a few years uh, as an economist. And, and there must be other people out there who'd love to do this. And that's where I came up with the idea of the North Pole Marathon. It very much started at the South Pole. And you were right. Who would want to run there? And a lot of people wanted to run there. Yeah, I mean, when I was at the North Pole the first time, uh, no idea what I was doing. Uh, I was kind of, you know, you get the odd moment where you're saying, this is crazy, but you love it, you know, and I loved it. And I knew people would want to do something like this. It, w it wasn't long after that that I said, people are going to want to run a marathon at the North Pole. And, and it was within a couple of years of that, I switched from being an economist to organizing the North Pole Marathon. How did you find out about the race at the South Pole? Uh, you know, that's so long ago. It would have been. It must have been on the internet or something back in two thousand and one. But the internet just... wasn't what it is now. No. So uh, I, I really can't remember. I'd have to go back and look through files, probably that I have. But certainly, it popped up on the radar there uh, as a South Pole marathon, and uh, yeah. So I said, I'm going to have to run this. And that was, I think, the only marathon that was held at the same It was. It, was uh, it turned out to be unnecessarily an extremely controversial race because it was a race where only six people went down to it. And uh, it was a race advertised as a linear route to the South Pole. Um, like skiing the last degree? Yeah, except it, you know, half a degree, I guess. And um, so we went down there. The race was advertised for, a, it was a 10-day schedule. I remember leaving Ireland on January 1st. I didn't get back till the end of January. We were stuck in Antarctica for at least 18 days. Uh, first of all, at a camp called Patriot Hills, which is close to the current Union Glacier camp, and then up on the Polar Plateau where we attempted the race. Uh, there was all kinds of delays, safety issues involved in this race. But while we were in Antarctica, I hyperextended my knee 
and uh, it was very badly inflamed. I was told I had zero chance of finishing a marathon. Uh, and that's when I elected to wear these snowshoes, which were actually Dean Carnass's snowshoes because he wasn't wearing them in the race. And little did I know wearing these things would uh, be a reason to explore an opportunity to put me into a different division when I actually won the race. <laughs> so it was a bizarre set of circumstances. But the bottom line was um, I won this race by about half an hour. I was announced as the winner. Went all around the world. I was the winner of this race. And then they tried to change the results afterwards and say that, well, actually, the guy who finished second is the winner because he wasn't wearing his snowshoes. You were wearing them. So it was very, very funny, uh, as if these snowshoes whisked me over the ice like a magic carpet. In fact, for me, they were a big problem because they, I think I mentioned earlier, we don't wear them at the North Pole because they hurt your hips and all kinds of issues. But it was that race and the controversy around it uh, which even Sports Illustrated followed. It was, it was most bizarre for me as my first race as an adult as such to be involved in, in, in such a story and, uh, and to almost have to win the race twice. I mean, I felt like I'd buried my father twice when he had died and given his body to science and then we buried him two years later. I was running this in his memory and I felt like I had to win the race twice. But I fought that battle and, and won out, of course. And and the bonus from it was when I heard this rumor that this other guy was going to the North Pole, I decided, you know what, in typical polar fashion, I guess in history, there's always some kind of competition and this would be way down the line. Of course, this was much more petty, just two marathoners. But I said, I'm going to get up to the North Pole somehow. And I did. And that event has probably kickstarted everything that we've talked about. That has that challenge, I will call it. Uh, yeah, has kickstarted all this running career. And with being the winner of the South Pole Marathon, you became the first person to run a marathon to the South Pole and then subsequently... Yeah, so later that North April, Pole. yeah, so the, the South Pole Marathon occurred, I think, around January 22nd, 2002. And by April 5th, 2002, I had run the first marathon at the North Pole too, which was not on the continent and not in my agenda for that year, but I figured a way to get up there and do it. And... Uh, and like I say, from that, the North Pole Marathon came about and a complete change in my life. Now, out of curiosity, when you contacted the Russians to say you wanted to fly to the North Pole to run a marathon, what kind of a response did you get? Well, it wasn't quite just contacting the Russians. I had American friends who were helping me with this as well, and they were really at, in first contact with the Russians. For me, my first direct contact was when I met them in Svalbard and then went to the North Pole and built a camp with them. And, and we very quickly became friends and, and have remained friends over all these years. Um, and that's how I get logistics done at the North Pole. The, the Russian guys I deal with are, you know, we're close buddies and we make things happen. Everything that has happened to this point has been as a result of that decision that you made to run a race after your parents died in their memory. Could you offer any advice to somebody who is trying to decide on whether to do a race, some other event, climb a mountain, change jobs? There's a certain amount of risk involved. Would you maybe, say, ensure you have a bit of a safety net or just go for it? My advice is go for it. You know, follow your instinct and, and do things that have meaning for you. I decided to do this race, the South Pole and some other ones, and that completely changed my life afterwards. I didn't grow up thinking I was going to be organizing polar events, uh, stuff like that. Don't be afraid to do something different and follow what your instinct says is good for you, not necessarily safe for you. And you never know what's around the corner when you do that. Richard, thanks very much for your time. And um, we might do a follow up at some stage, as I'm sure there's a lot of stuff we haven't touched on. And good luck with your run across North America. Thanks very much, John. 